Hi, this is Jonathan Evans. You're listening to Boundless Vancouver's sermon series, King and Kingdom, episode one on the scripture, Mark 1, 1 through 13. If you're not familiar with this passage, you might want to pause right now and read it aloud. This sermon is entitled, It's Time, Introducing First. Mark, the gospel writer, has the voice of a ring announcer. Most Saturday nights, I like watching UFC, the ultimate fighting championship. There's a particular rhythm and cadence to Bruce Buffer's introduction. It's time! Introducing first, in the red corner, from Bethlehem by way of Nazareth, weighing 165 pounds, measuring 5 foot 9, the undisputed bantam weight champion of the world! Mark's gospel sounds like that. He's taken the best eyewitness stories from Peter and put it together in his own style, which is like the Spike TV of the gospels. There's action and excitement in his voice. He's always saying, and then suddenly, he starts by introducing the main character, Jesus, through another announcer, John the Baptist. And today, we're going to unpack the meaning and code of Mark's introduction in three steps. First, what the prophet's introduction is. Second, what is the way? And what is this belovedness? So, let's look at the prophet's introduction. How do you introduce someone really important? Maybe you've done a wedding speech. Mark and John the Baptist introduced Jesus like the best men at a wedding banquet. There are nuances and inside jokes and references, lots of references to previous symbols and writings from Psalm 2, Malachi, and Isaiah. In Mark 1, verse 1, we read, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, Messiah, the Son of God. This is a reference to Psalm 2, where God's king, his Messiah, anointed one, is the Son of God. This introduction will further demonstrate how Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit and proclaimed as God's beloved Son. Next, Mark gives us a reference from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. It reads, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Malachi prophesies that Elijah, the prophet, will come again before the Messiah. Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6 read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day that the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. See, John the Baptist is dressed like Elijah and in the wilderness, fulfilling this prophecy. Notice that Jesus, too, will be driven into the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord by defeating the devil, and then later announcing his kingdom. The book of Malachi anticipates that God himself will come and prepare his people. A great and mighty day of the Lord, that the temple will be cleansed, that he will destroy idols and idolatry. He'll renew the priests and bless his true people. I need to point out this. God's approach to us, it's different than all religions. We see that God in Jesus has come to us. We don't have to get smart enough, good enough, rich enough, 
popular or powerful by following rules to get to God. No, the gospel is all about God coming to us and stooping low so that he can gather us and bring us to the Father. That's what this passage is about. And then Mark, in verse 3, is going to jump to Isaiah. These prophecies insist that God comes with might to fight his enemies. And that's found in Isaiah 40, verse 10. He is to prepare the way, again, to topple every obstacle. Mountains are going to be obliterated. Valleys are going to be filled up so that there's flat and smooth land that people can travel, and God will make a way to be with his people. In Isaiah, God's mighty surprise is revealed in God's suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 6, we read, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God's servant, God's suffering servant, has come for redemption, restoration through his own suffering. And then the last reference to the prophets in this section I want to highlight is from Mark 1 verse 10, where we see the heavens torn open. This is a prayer from Isaiah 64, verse 1. It prays, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down to us, that the mountain might quake at your presence. Well, where have we seen mountains quake before? But on Sinai, when God gives his law, that his voice is like thunder. But what does it mean that the heavens would be torn and that God would come down? We must first ask, what is heaven? Heaven in Hebrew understanding of the time isn't like our modern idea of an up in the clouds or so far beyond the galaxies. Heaven wasn't where angels hang out in clouds and eat cream cheese like in our commercials. No, heaven was the dimension of reality beyond the physical world where God is reigning. Lord Alfred Tennyson captures this well in his poem, The Higher Pantheism. Part of it reads, Speak to him, thou, for he hears, and spirit with spirit can meet. Closer is he than breathing, and nearer than hands and feet. God is law, say the wise, O soul, and let us rejoice, for if he thunder by law, the thunder is yet his voice. In Jesus' baptism, we get a glimpse of what heaven opening up to our earthly reality is. God's voice, spoken by His Holy Spirit. This is the cry of the prophets, that God would break through our horrible reality into His reality and reunite heaven and earth. We see this happen in Mark's introduction. 
and that God is making a new way that we can follow. So, this is the second part of the sermon. What is the way that Jesus is preparing? Well, the way means going from something to something else, and this is understood as God's new exodus. Israel saw themselves as trapped. They were still in exile. The Romans governed how and when they could worship. They had to pay taxes and observe most Roman laws. They felt the Pharaoh of the land. They felt the Pharaoh in their hearts and longed for when God would send the king instead of the imposter and puppet King Herod, who was a tyrant and not even a real Israelite. Can you imagine what a nation would feel if they had an awful leader and couldn't just wait to get him out of the palace? They wanted the promised Messiah out and to get rid of the old leader. They wanted to show a new way out of exile and into promised. Well, how do you get into promise? Well, the way out of captivity is through water and the way into promise is through water. Israel found its way out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and Israel found its way into the Promised Land by crossing the Jordan River, where we find ourselves now. Just like Israel, John's baptism represented this journey. Baptism was a way of becoming Jewish. Proselytes would cut their nails and shave their bodies to be like a bare and naked baby. They would fully immerse under the living water of a river and emerge as a new life. Now, in a new family with God's people, they would count their age based on this new birthday. But first to be baptized, they would have to repent. And repent here in Greek is the word metanoia, which literally meant to change one's mind. In this prophetic context, what do we have to change our mind about? It's about our relationship with God. Israel's prophets highlighted there's a greater captivity than the powers of the world. It's an inward captivity, the oppression of our own feelings and thoughts. Have you ever been there? We think we're enemies of God. We think God's angry with us, that God's departed us, that we should be scared of Him and not go near Him or His holy mountain. We feel we're awful, that we have to do everything ourselves to be right. Follow the rules, and then, and only then, God would be happy with us. But no, Jesus comes to show us another way. Jesus shows us who God really is. He shows us what God really does. Surprisingly, Jesus repents and gets baptized for you and me. Baptism marks the beginning of the story, the way out of captivity and into a new life. It's already been done for you by Jesus, and He has started you on the journey. The new baptism provided by Jesus, pay attention to Mark 1.8. John says this, I have baptized you with water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And this follows what John says in his gospel. When Jesus meets with Nicodemus, he says, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. This is why Jesus says, you must be born again. In the next chapter, in John 4, 2, we read this. Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. 
Do you see this? What's happening? Humans can baptize with water, but God and only God can baptize with spirit. Jesus doesn't baptize with water. That was John's job. Jesus will baptize you in the full immersion in the life and love of the Father. This is an eternal and heavenly blessing bringing together heaven and earth. This is the way that Jesus has prepared. Through baptism of the Holy Spirit, we see that immersion is what Jesus gets baptized in. It's an acceptance of our belovedness in God. So, this brings us to our third and final point. First, we saw that the prophets create an expectation of renewal and restoration when the Messiah comes. And then second, we saw how the Messiah would prepare a new way, a new baptism out of captivity and into God's promise. So, now we see that the way is marked with hearing that God loves us and we are brought to the Father. Israel thought they were no longer God's beloved sons. They prayed and longed for God to return to them as a father and accept them. Again, the prophets give us this prayer in Isaiah 63, 15-17. It prays, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we not fear you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. God answers Israel prayers and fulfills this Isianic property. As Jesus emerges from the waters and heavens are open, we see the Father, we see the Son, we see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and we hear, You are my beloved Son. With you, I'm well pleased. And because of Jesus, His life lived and His message of heaven to you today is, I love you. I'm well pleased. Mark's next section will be Jesus' call to his disciples to follow him in the way of a belovedness. This may sound comforting and nice, some self-help affirmation for our cruel post-COVID world, but it's not mere sentimentality. The battle in the wilderness will require that continual baptism of the Spirit, where we can navigate life with the heavenly reality of God's love, that you're God's beloved child. Most of how we handle life, in fact, can be reduced to this. Are you loved? Let me tell you a story. A famous movie producer had a huge legal battle with his longtime mentor and guide. The younger man simply couldn't handle criticism and ended up rejecting the person who had helped him so much. When it was all over, a close friend summed up the real problem. It was all about an ungenerous father, he explained, and a son looking for an affirmation and love. It happens all the time. It happens in families, in businesses, all over. 
Many children grow up in our world who have never had a father say to them, either in words, in looks, or hugs, You're my dear child. Let alone, I'm pleased with you. In the Western world, even those fathers who think this in their hearts are often too tongue-tied or embarrassed to tell their children how delighted they are with them. Many go by the completely opposite route. They hear angry voices, they feel bitter rejection, and they're abandoned. The whole Christian gospel can be summed up in this point, that when the living God looks at us, every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he says to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves, but who we are in Jesus. It sometimes seems impossible, especially to people who have never had this kind of support from their earthly parents, but it's true. God looks at you and he says, you're my dear, dear child. I'm delighted in you. Mark and John the Baptist have an announcement for you today. It's time. It's time for God to come and break through heaven and into your reality. They want to introduce you. I want to introduce you to God's message. You're loved. When was the last time that you felt that from God? Marshall McLuhan, the great Canadian philosopher, said, The medium is the message. Jesus is the message that God loves you and adopts you as his beloved child. Will you accept and live your life today as God's beloved? Let me pray for you. God, thanks for this message that you've prepared a way that you announced it by the prophets, that you fulfilled it in Jesus by his coming, his baptism, and his message. And I pray for each person listening that they would now feel your love. Amen.